our God is able. Amen. Amen. grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, where we hear about this God who is able. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at just two verses today, verses 20 and 21. And as you turn there, uh, Denard was mentioning earlier that we have a new class starting next week. We want to invite everyone to, uh, it's a phenomenal class we've done years ago in the past, and now we're doing it again. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And if you uh, have never heard of that, it's based on a book that was written years ago, and it's a phenomenal course on what it means to go deeper with God in our spiritual life, our, our whole self, our emotions, our spiritual life, our minds, our, our past, our present, all of that. What does it mean to, to go deeper with God below the surface? And so we're excited to have that class here. We've got some great teachers lined up to facilitate that for us. Uh, but that starts next Sunday, 9.15, right here uh, at church. Now, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, hear the reading of God's Word. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 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 I want to tag our text today, the God who is able, the God who is able. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your power. Thank you that you are a God who has never met a challenge he couldn't meet. You're a God who has never seen a wall you couldn't climb or tear down. You've never met a sickness You've never met a brokenness, anything that could come against you. You are able in all things. And so, God, we come to your word today asking that you would work that power in us for your glory and our good forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it pays to read the fine print. I don't know if anyone has ever told you that before or given you that good advice, but despite that advice, if you're like me, most of us don't take that advice. But there is one person who recently took that advice that I read an article about, and, and this young lady was going to this uh, insurance company that's based out of St. Petersburg, and the, the insurance company is called Squaremouth, and they sell travel insurance. And she was going to, to purchase travel insurance for herself, and and she sat down with these folks and, and heard their pitch of what was going on. And, and she had heard her whole life that you were to read the fine print. But little did she know that in her policy was something special. See, these folks, they had decided to write into their policy. Get this. They wrote into their policy a contest, but didn't tell anybody about it. And in this policy was written this incredible contest, and they wanted to see if anyone actually read the fine print. And so when she purchases the insurance, she gets her policy manual, and, and she sits down, and just as she was told, she reads the whole thing, and she comes to page 7. 
Page seven of all these policies and legal words, 4,000 words in this document, and it reads in this little section entitled, It Pays to Read. It says this, This is a contest that rewards the individual who reads their policy information from start to finish. And if you are the first person to contact us, you may be awarded the Pays to Read contest grand prize of $10,000. So she immediately wrote the company, the email the next day, and they call her back immediately and they say, you were the first person to read it. You're the winner. $10,000. It pays to read the fine print. That same company estimates that only 1% of their customers read anything that they sign. Fascinating, right? I mean, so many times we just assume. I mean, we all do it, right? We, we assume that what we're doing is good or what we're doing is right. And, and if you're like me, you're, you, you've assumed so many things in life. I mean, we just assume on a regular basis. It's kind of how we do things and how we function in the world. And it might be an assumption that you make about someone at your job and they're going through a hard time and you know God has been putting it on your heart to pray for them and to share the gospel with them because they're, they're in a difficult situation and, and you assume that they don't want to hear that. You assume that they're not open to spiritual things. Or it might be that, that you assume that you're, you're in an argument with a friend and, and, and you take their words and, and, and you twist them just a little bit and you assume what they mean by that rather than clarifying with them and asking them. Right? We, we assume. Or we've been told our whole life that we're, we're not going to amount to anything. And someone told us at some point that we're not going to do much in life and so we've assumed that we're not capable of doing more and so we never even pursue it. We just kind of back up and, and let life happen because we've assumed that they were telling the truth. We assume big things, small things, even $10,000 things. But one thing's for sure, in all of our assumptions, we don't leave room for surprise. We leave no room for surprise. And one of the biggest assumptions, I think, in the church is prayer. And it makes sense in one sense, right? To pray is, is, as one person said, it's the cradle language of the church. That this is how we, we get going. That this is what it means to have a relationship with God. Just the basic communication to, to relate to Him and, and to have conversation with God. And so it makes sense that we would maybe take that for granted or assume that we understand it because it's so normal, it's so regular, it's, it's part of our walk with God, right? But in another sense... If, if you slow down and you really think about why do I pray, you might be surprised at your motive. I mean, when, when have you thought about that recently? Why do I pray? I mean, really, really, why do I pray? Because we assume that we understand it. We assume that we're so familiar with it. And so like the document, you know, we just kind of skim through it. We get to the end and we sign our name and we're done. Because we've got prayer figured out. But when you assume about prayer, you leave no room for surprise. No room for what God could do. And so last week we began looking at this prayer from Paul for the church. And this, this prayer is actually the hinge of Ephesians. 
If you look at the book as a whole, the first half of Ephesians that we've been walking through together, the first half, chapters 1 through 3, is all about Paul kind of laying down the doctrine of the church. This is what it means to be the church. And so we've been talking about that. What does it mean to be the church? And, and he's kind of laying the theological foundation. And now he's about to turn the corner. And the second half of Ephesians is all about how we actually live out that doctrine. So here's what it means to be the church. Now here's how we live as the church. And right in the center of the book, the hinge of the book, is prayer. Right at the center of the church is prayer. And so Paul has been praying, and, and as he prays for the church, last week we looked at what he prays for, right? We looked at the content of his prayer, and that he's praying for this church that is undergoing extreme conflict as they are people from different nations and cultures and, and classes, and they're coming together in this place, and he's praying for their strength to love each other. But now this week we back up and we ask, why? What, why does he pray? What, why is that Paul's strategy? Why is that his response? What, what leads him to that? What motivates him to pray? And I think if we look at his motive, it might be somewhat surprising. And so that's what I want to look at today. How does the gospel lead us to pray? Let's first look at the power. If you're taking notes today, number one, the first thing is the power. Look, look at verse 20, what he says. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is incredible because Paul is turning now from praying for the church, right? He was praying for the church to now he's praising God. He goes from interceding or intercession to adoration. There's this sense that Paul just kind of gets wellsed up. There's something in his heart that just bursts out that he, he starts to worship God. It takes him up and, and he looks towards heaven and he starts to just fill up with worship and he can't contain it anymore. And what's interesting is what leads him to that. See, what is it about prayer? What is it about God that leads him to this kind of worship? In this case, it was God's power. See, he had just been praying for power, for strength for the church. And as Paul is praying about God's power, he starts to just meditate on the God of power. He starts to meditate on the source of this power, and he starts to realize this God is able, right? He, he turns from them, and he says, now to him who is able. It's this same word for power. It's dunamis. Now to him who is power itself, I'm going to give him praise. But what is he able to do? This is fascinating. He says, far more abundantly. This is one of Paul's super superlatives, as the scholars call it. In other words, that's a fancy word for he's making up words. He, he takes the highest comparison and then he just adds super to it. And he, he's just making up words. He's combining these words to say, I don't have a word for it, but let me make a word for it. And so the best we can guess is it's beyond measure. It's more than ever. It's the highest form of comparison known. That's what he's saying. He's saying that is God's power. And this power isn't limited by our puny prayers. L look at what he says. Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Think about that for a moment. First of all, all. Imagine all the prayers you've ever said to God. 
If you could just picture them in a pile, like you could just gather them up from every day and every week and every year, and you just threw them into a pile, and it created this massive mountain of all the things you've ever said to God. He says it's far more abundantly than that. But not only all of them, he says everything you've ever asked. Like he's saying that the highest thing you've ever asked for, if you've asked God for something insane, like you just prayed a prayer that you knew was ridiculous and, and you just threw it out there to see if God would take it, right? He says it's far more abundantly than the craziest thing you've ever asked. Yeah. Yeah. But not only that, he says not just what you've asked, but what you thought. Yeah. Yeah. Or some translations say what you can imagine. In other words, have you ever been afraid to pray something like that? That's just too much for God. So I'm not even going to pray it. I'm just going to think it. He says, take the craziest thought you've ever had. And it's far more exceedingly abundantly more than that. That's his power. He's saying this, this is beyond your prayers. It, in other words, his, his power is meant to liberate your puny little prayers. I'm, let me try to expand our imagination for a moment uh, in this idea of immeasurable that he's trying to, to communicate. Uh, peek inside a water drop for just a moment. H- how many molecules do you think are in a water drop? Just one single drop of water. I mean, any guesses? Maybe, maybe hundreds or, or thousands, millions? Billions? I don't know. Trillions? I, I had to look it up because if you're like me, I haven't been in, uh, I haven't been in science class lately, so I, I Googled it like most of us do. And, and it turns out it depends on how you define a drop of water, right? But I guess there's actually an accepted size for the average drop of water, and they say it's 0.05 milliliters. So if you take that size of a water drop, li- listen to what they say. This is how many molecules... 1.5 sextillion molecules in a single drop. I didn't even know what that word was. So then I had to Google that, right? I, I don't understand what that word was. So I Googled that and it's, it's a number with 21 zeros. So to, so to try to wrap your mind around that, think about this. If you could count 10 molecules per second, which is pretty fast, you would be counting the molecules in that one drop for four trillion years. There are more molecules in a tablespoon of water than there are stars in the universe. Just blow your mind of the immeasurable vastness of the ocean. And and this is what God is saying it, it's beyond description. It's beyond measure. You, you can't put it into numbers. This, this is his power. And he's saying this God of that incredible power pays attention to your prayers. He pays attention to your prayers. And so here we are limiting our prayers, right? I mean, we, first of all, we, we limit our prayers by our sense of need. I mean, we just don't pray for things because we don't think we need things. You can tell what you think you need because that's what you pray for. Right? We, we think that everything else in our life we, we can handle. And so I don't pray for the small things. I don't pray for the little details. I don't, I don't pray for the things that everyone assumes. Or I just think I, I got those things. 
Those are the things in my box. And then God, these are the things I don't have an answer for. And so I'm going to put those in your box. But over here, the 98% of my life, I've got it. And what's fascinating is God says, I'm, I'm not going to be limited by that. I'm still going to meet your needs, even if you don't know them yet. Even, even if you don't think in the midst of that temptation that, that it's, it's good to take it to me and, and, and bring your sin struggles to me and I can handle those things, even if you're going to try to fight sin yourself, I'm still going to move into your life and I'm going to do far exceedingly more than what you asked or thought. Even if you're struggling with despair and you think, you know what, I can, I can deal with this myself and I don't need to talk to anybody, I don't need to bring this to God, I can deal with it all by myself, even though you think that, I'm going to come move towards you and I'm going to do far more than you ever asked. See, God is inviting us to bring Him the big things, the small things, the details, the pains, the doubts, the fears, everything that his power is able to do. Secondly, we limit them by our desires. And this may seem obvious, but prayer, it expresses desire. And so when we pray, we're, we're praying for what we want. It's an expression of our heart. It's what's in our heart that comes out of our mouths. And so it's actually a really great way to start praying. I mean, let me just tell you, if, if you're not great at praying, here's how you learn to pray. Just pray whatever's on your mind. Just pray. I mean, even if it's bad stuff, just pray. Talk to God and tell Him how you want to do better at your job and tell Him how angry you are about your kids and tell Him about how you're struggling with your thought life. Whatever it is, just pray for whatever's on your heart and your mind. Pray for the big house that you want. Pray for the nice car. I don't care, but bring it to God. But here's the thing. If you're only praying your desires, what happens is you're limited because you don't know what you should want. We, we are so broken, we pray for things we shouldn't want. But here's what God does. He says, I'm going to give you more than you asked for because here's what you would have wanted if you knew what I knew. Here, here's what you would have wanted. Here's what you would have asked for if you weren't so limited and you were immeasurable like me. And so I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more because I'm more. And lastly, we're, we're limited by our understanding. We, we don't know what God is doing. We don't know why He's doing it. Right? We, we don't understand why he, will, he allowed that extreme suffering, that trauma, that difficult season, the dark night of the soul that we walked through. We, we don't understand why that was happening. We don't understand why we're still in the midst of it. Even if we can't explain it, even if we can't comprehend it, even if we don't know how it works or how it fits into all the other pieces of our life, God is saying, I do. Even if you don't know, even if it's beyond what you can imagine, I do understand. And I'm working it all together for your good. I'm working it together. We don't know, but we have a God who's known from all eternity. And so he's working out his plan in his power. And we pray. But, but how do we know that, that he has this power? This is where Paul goes next. This is what's great. He, he, he gives us the proof that we can pray with this kind of power. And this is the second point, the proof. Look at verse 20. He goes on like this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, here it is, 
according to the power at work within us. I love this because Paul is saying, listen, the, the, the power that I'm describing about God, that this is not some foreign power out there. That this is actually a power that's already in here. That this is not some power that you're hoping for will one day come into your life. This, this is not a power out there somewhere that you're unfamiliar with. This is actually a power that's already at work within you. This is an intimate power. This is a power you know it's present tense. And in order to understand what he's talking about, you have to go back to chapter 1 in Ephesians verse 19. He, he says in chapter 1, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Listen, here it is. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's picking up that same language here in his prayer. He's saying, if you go back, he's saying that this is a power that we are intimately familiar with. This immeasurable greatness, this according to his great might, he says it's a certain kind of power. It's resurrection power. It's the resurrection power of God. The power that got Jesus out of the grave. The power that brought Jesus back to life. This is not some power out there. This is the same power that was working in Jesus is now at work in you. That same power that on the third day rose him with all power in his hands is in you. From spiritual death to spiritual life. And this is what he's saying. Catch this. He's saying God's past power proves his future power. He's saying, according to the work that's already at work in you, his past power is what proves his future power. Let, let me try to make it plain with, uh, with a story that Jesus told. So Jesus told a famous story of a father who had a lot of money, wealthy father, and he had two sons. Maybe you heard the story. And the younger son, he comes to the father and he says, I want my inheritance, which basically was saying, I want you dead. I don't want you anymore, Dad. I want you gone so I can have your money. And of course, the father, as you know the story, he's gracious enough to give the son the money. He takes the money. He runs off to another country, and he indulges himself in everything he could find. He indulges himself in every pleasure and every sin and everything he could get his hands on until he had nothing left. And then when he hits the rock bottom, right, he comes to his senses, as the Bible says. He comes to his senses, and then he realizes, where am I going to go? I've got nothing here. I've got nothing there. The only way I can get back to my father's house is if I do something in myself to get there. And so he starts to prepare a speech, a pitch, if you will. Hey, have you ever done that before? You knew you did something wrong and, and you got to go explain yourself or you got to go ask for forgiveness and you start mulling it over in your head. You're preparing what you're going to say. You, you're thinking if, if they say this, that's what I'm going to say. And if they say this, that's what I'm going to say. And so here he is. He's preparing his speech for his father and his speech is going to go like this. I'll be your servant because I know I've messed it up really bad. And I'll be your servant to work off my debt and, and whatever it takes, I'll, I'll earn myself back into your favor. Just let me be a servant. 
And then he goes back to his father's house, and when he shows up at the house, he finds his father waiting. And the Bible says he runs to his son. He was waiting, he was looking, he was anticipating it. And when he runs to see his son, he wraps his arms around him and he overwhelms him with emotion and love and, and, and he's just so excited to see him. And the son, you could tell, just doesn't know what to do and so his speech just kind of comes out, right? Like, I don't know how to handle this, so I'm just going to start my speech. And he starts his speech and he says, will you forgive me? I've sinned against you and against heaven. And then he stops. And he never mentions being a servant. Nothing about, I'm going to earn your favor again. Nothing about, I'm going to do this so you can, you can love me again. Nothing about that at all. In fact, before he can get to that part in the speech, the father cuts him off. And he says, bring the party. Let's kill the fattened calf. Bring, bring the shoes. Bring the ring. Bring my best robe. And I'm so excited. My son is home. This is what he says. He once was dead, but now he's alive. It was resurrection. But here, here's the incredible part of the story. Don't miss it. He gives him more than he asks for. The father wasn't satisfied with him being a servant who would work off his debt. The son would have been satisfied that if I can just come and be your servant. And the father says, I'm, I'm not going to settle for any of that. I will settle for nothing less than you being my child. This, this is what Paul is saying. He, he's saying, according to what God has already done, God has already in your past done far more, exceedingly more, abundantly more than you have ever asked or imagined. Right? When we were far from God and we were running the other direction, when we were ruining our lives, when we thought it was wise to sin against Him, when we thought it was good for us that we would rebel against Him, God said, I'm going to still pursue you. I'm going to still chase you down because I love you. And even if you're not going to ask me, even if you're afraid to ask me, even if you don't think it's good to ask me, I'm going to give you more than you would ask for. I'm going to make your dead heart come alive. I'm going to make your dead life be revived. See, none of us could raise ourselves, but God showed up in power. He shows up in power to give us more than we asked for. See, some of you know what I'm talking about. He, he's been better to you than you've ever asked or imagined. And, and what he's saying, what Paul is saying, is if he's done that in your past, if that's the power that's working in you now, how much more in the future? How much more? I mean, let me, let me ask you this. What, what have you been afraid to pray for? What, what have you been afraid to pray for? What, what have you felt shame to pray for? What have you felt unworthy to pray for? And here, here's the strange thing about prayer. Just because you pray something and it sounds crazy doesn't mean God's going to give it to you. But, but what it means is you're crazy enough to ask Him. Because you believe your Father has the ability to do it. And what God does is he takes our crazy, ludicrous, faith-filled prayers and he says, I'll do more than that. 
even if it's not what you asked, even if it's not what you think, but it'll be better. Yeah. It'll be more. Yeah. And, and I'll show you how I'm going to work it together yes. to do my will. Yeah, that's it. What, what does your prayer life look like? I mean, it, is it full of that kind of now to him who is able, or is it now to him who I'm back again doing what I got to do? Because he's saying, this, this is my power that I've worked in, and I can do it again. And how are we called to respond to that kind of power that he's proved already? Let's look at the posture. This is the last point, and we'll close. Look at verse 21. Paul says this, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I love the old King James. It says, to world without end. I don't know what that means, but it sounds great. <laughs> well, what Paul is saying is, is if, if all the power is from God, all the glory goes to God. Right, that, that's what he's saying. He's saying if all of this is from him and it's working in me already and he's promising to continue to work for me, it's to him. All things are from him and through him and to him. That, that's what he's saying. And he's saying to give glory to God means it means that you give him weight. I know that's something that, that church people throw out a lot. We, we sing it in songs and we talk about giving glory to God. But, but do you know what it means? It, it really means to give something weight. And, and it comes from the idea of a scale. So if you had two things on a scale, one thing weighs more than the other. If it's heavier, it had more value or worth in the ancient world. And so to have more value or worth or weight meant it had more glory. And so to give something glory means to give it weight and value and worth. It's to say this thing has the most significance. This thing is what's heavy in my life. And so what Paul is saying is I'm giving him glory for all things to, to tell the story of his value and worth to us that it's infinite, his infinite glory. And so you see it in his posture. If you go all the way back to verse 14, at the beginning of this prayer, verse 14 says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. See, the typical posture of prayer in the Jewish culture at the time was standing. You may remember in some of Jesus's parables, you have the Pharisees standing when they pray. That was, that was the typical way of praying. But here, Paul is kneeling. And so it's, it's somewhat unusual, and, and what it means is people would kneel when there's a sense of earnestness or, 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 or expectation or, or even dependence, like you're, you have to come and, and, and you're in the presence of somebody uh, unique and different, right? So to kneel was a sign that I was, I was someone less than the person who's greater than me. I'm going to lower myself down to the ground to signify that they are greater and I am lesser. And so Paul is, is with his body embodying the very reality of God's glory. He, with his body, he's saying, I am humbling myself to the ground because whatever you want, Father, yeah. you're the greatest. Yeah. You're, you're the one with glory. You're the one with power. You're the one with might, and so I bow my knees to you. See, humility, humility is the posture of powerful prayer. It's humility. E even Jesus, 
on his last night, bowed the knee. Even Jesus says he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says he's, he's feeling the weight of the wrath of God coming upon him in such a way that he literally starts to sweat drops of blood. And there's so much stress and so much pressure that Jesus bows his knees to his Father, and he begins to cry out and pray to him. And what does he say? He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. If you're willing, take this wrath from me. If if there's any other way, there's got to be another way, Father. There's got to be something else. We don't have to go this direction. If, If there's something, please make it happen. Because Jesus knew his Father was able. And so he prays a radical, crazy prayer. God, if you're willing, change the plan. But if you're not, nevertheless, what does he say? Not my will but yours be done. It's the sound of submission. Whatever your will is, Father, I'm in. I'm all yours. And so I bow my knee to you. See, Jesus was tasting what was to come. He's tasting a, a sip of that cup the night before he would drink it all on the cross. He would taste the hell of separation from his father like never before. He would taste the bitterness of betrayal from his own friends. He would taste the suffering for our own sins for all generations. Jesus had to bend his will to the cross because we were so bent out of shape with sin. Sin had so wrecked our posture, so ruined our relationship. There was no other way but the cross. And it seemed as if God was failing. It seemed as if this was foolishness, as if it was weakness. But listen, this was the power. This is what Corinthians says later on. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. The power was in his will bending to God's will. His will bending to his Father. In 1936, there was a group of nine working class boys, and uh, they had kind of shocked the world because they won the Olympic gold medal for rowing. And it was surprising because uh, nobody expected these folks from working class families. They, they weren't wealthy people like most of the people who were involved with rowing. They, they were from families who were plumbers and electricians, and, and they were folks who kind of grew up in the middle class, blue collar community. They weren't the people you expected to win, and, and yet they won and they won and they won. In fact, they defeated many Ivy League schools. And then they went on to defeat even the famous German team at the time. And so they took this medal, and everybody's wondering, how in the world did they win? And the way they won is this rare thing that's hard to to achieve in rowing, but they call it swing. And it only happens when there's eight people in the boat in perfect alignment, perfect unison. That means every part of their body is pulling in the same direction. Every ounce of their energy is is going in the same direction. And so you've got 16 uh, arms that are pulling back and forth, back and forth in the same precise time. And then you've got 16 knees that are folding and unfolding and folding and unfolding at the precise time. 
And you've got eight backs that are going forward and backwards. You've got eight heads that are moving in the same direction. All of it, their whole body, their whole being together. And when you do that, they say they call it swing. You, you hit this momentum that nobody can catch. Because the boat is moving with such precision, such power. There's this perfect power in perfect alignment. That's the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer is saying, I'm aligning my will to God's will. The posture of prayer is saying, I'm aligning my weakness to God's power. And only then will our pride be crushed by grace. Only then will our anxieties be lifted by faith. Only then will our corruption be cured by hope. Only then will our needs be supplied by His love. Only then will our will come under His will and God's power be fully seen. And so as we close, will will you bend your will to God's will? That's what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's power in that. Far more abundantly beyond what you could ask or think or imagine, beyond anything you could come up with, and it may not look like you wanted it to, but when you bend your will to him and you say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, God does beyond what you could imagine. For your good and his glory. And so today, as we close, what what he's doing is he's inviting us to pray. He's inviting us to bring all things to him. And if you've never done that before, and maybe you, your, your relationship with God has, has kind of gone to the side, or maybe you've never had a relationship with him, what, what he's inviting you into is this saying to just say, God, it's, it's not me, it's you. I, I, I want my life to, to go to the side, and I want you to be the great one. I want you to have the glory. I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm asking for your love. I'm asking for transformation in my life. But, but I know, I don't even know what to ask for. And so I know you can do more than I can ask for. You can do more than I can imagine. And so I'm simply coming to, to submit myself to you and to put myself in your trust. And when you do that, there's power. He's able. He's able, far more abundant. So we pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as you cried out in the garden and on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father answered your prayers greater than what you said. And yet you allow us in the same way to be real, to be broken, to be weak, to be helpless and powerless. And then you come in your power and you do so much more. And so God, today I pray that you would restore our faith, restore our faith in a God who is able beyond our puny little minds our small perspectives, our short time here on earth in history. Help us to entrust all of it to you. All of it. And to know that whether we know why or how or when, you're able and you're good. 
love us and you've proven yourself over and over. And so we come confident in you, confident that we have access to a good Father. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.